Take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6. If you're new here today, we've been walking through the book of Mark and a number of weeks, actually counted up, it's about 20 plus weeks already that we spent in Mark. But today we come to a text that's a challenge, but let me introduce it by this way. Uh, when you watch television today, you know, I look at my age and go, it has really changed, okay, for me. First, I grew up on black and white, and, and uh, that in itself is a little different from HD, but I, I think back to the changes in, you know, Ozzy and Harriet and some of those very benign shows years ago, and now you turn on the TV, there's murder, there's deceit, there's extreme hatred, there's incest, there's decapitation, sexual perversions, jealousy, sexual lust, and the list goes on and on. And you wonder, can it get any worse? I don't know. That's my introduction for today. Look at verse 14, chapter 6. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe when he heard him. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came. When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and, and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because, because of his oaths and his guests. Did not, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately this king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter. And he gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Every word that I stated in the introduction today is a piece of this story and some of it behind the scenes. If you were to put this story today on television, it would be at least an R rating. See, the story and the backdrop, though, reminds us of a reality that should push us and pull us toward Christ. And if you're following along in the sermon outline, I said it this way, this reminder. We live in a deeply sinful and fallen world. See, the spiral toward moral depravity exists today, but it is not new. I think we get surprised at where the culture is headed Folks, this dates back to when man and a man and a woman jumped into sin, they came out from the umbrella of God, and they chose to declare their autonomy from God. And they claimed the right to decide 
What is good and what is evil? Now, there's a verse over the years that I've used fairly often, and, but it sums up really what took place in the garden. Look at Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was a no king in Israel. And this last phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this verse, I don't know if you realize this, is the last chapter, the last verse in the book of Judges. It summarizes the whole book. Now today, coming to this passage, I, I struggled with, go, how am I going to apply this? And uh, what's this story about? But here's where I, I landed. There are two main characters in this narrative this morning, John the Baptist and King Herod. And what we find is there is a contrast between these two men. Herod, a deeply worldly man, trapped in sin. And then you have the story of John the Baptist, a man who was beheaded, yet was a profound man of God. And so we're going to compare these men this morning and try to apply it to our lives. But understand King Herod first. One must really catch the, the, a snapshot of his family because it reveals more of the complete history of really who he was. Now, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but just kind of the walk through here. Verses 14 through 16, you understand Herod hears about Jesus and he's concerned People are telling that, well, he's a, there's a, he's a prophet from old, and he's Elijah, and, but in the back of his mind, he's wondering, is this guy John the Baptist that's come back to life? I understand why he's worried. Would this John the Baptist come and get him and do some of these miracles against him? You see, it leaves him wondering, who is this man? But let me kind of walk through pieces of the story here. Look at verse 20. For Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. See, Herod knew him well enough to figure out John the Baptist, this guy's got character. This is a deeply religious man, and he was worried that if he would have had him killed immediately, that there would have been an uprising and potentially Rome would have come down on him and he might lose his, his leadership in that area. They, they would exile leaders like that. See, but Herod feared John the Baptist when he was alive and when he was dead. Now, let me give you a summary of the character of this man the first one in the notes, I said it this way. This man lived in constant fear of others. Now, you, you got to catch that there's more to the story here that real, I think set the stage for his, his fear even. To back up farther, his official name is Herod Antipas. And, and he was the son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod Antipas, he took kind of the Herod part of it, attached it to his name because he wanted, because, his, because of his dad's fame, if you want to put it that way. But Herod the Great, his father, was the same Herod who had the babies under three, all the boys killed under three at the time of the birth of Christ. That was his dad. Folks, his heritage was nothing to brag about. But understand this, this family, the Herods, were not Romans. 
And they were not technically Jewish either. They actually came from Edom. So the Herods were Edomites. And history tells us that they were, they were south of Israel, and Israel had conquered them at one point, about 140 B.C., and they forced the people in that area to either adopt to the Jewish faith or you leave. As a matter of fact, they had to be circumcised as well. So the Herods came out of that line, were forced to be Jewish in that sense, and at that time as well, Herod the Great then came on the scene, he loved power, he loved fame, uh, and he, he, fought, you know, he kind of buddies up to Rome. They give him, and he becomes the ruler in that region. And, but even more, it gets even more complicated in this family. See, Herod the Great, dad, the dad Herod, had a total of 10 wives over the course of his life. But Herod the Great was a paranoid guy deeply suspicious to the point where he actually murdered three of his sons and a number of his wives. And one being the fourth wife, who was the mother to Herod Antipas that we have in the story here. Matter of fact, for Herod the Great, there was a saying that said, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's how they view this man. Deeply dysfunctional, evil man. He murdered one of his mother-in-laws. He killed an uncle. He murdered a brother-in-law. And you thought you grew up in a dysfunctional family, okay? But history records that when Herod the Great was actually on his deathbed, he ordered the arrest of a number of citizens, well-known citizens in the community, and he ordered them to be killed immediately after he died. And the reason he did that is that they would mourn the deaths of these people rather than celebrate his death. He knew that people didn't like him. You catch the dysfunction in his life, the deep sin in his life. What a family legacy that the Herod in our story grew up with. But when Herod the Great died, he divided his kingdom into three parts and one going to Herod Antipas here. But about the time that Jesus was coming on the scene, Herod Antipas went to see and visit his half-brother, Philip. And Philip had a wife. You saw in the text there, and Herod wanted his wife, had an affair with her, takes her back to his area, and they marry. So Philip, she divorced Philip. Herod divorced his wife, and they got together. But one other, one last piece here, Herod's, uh, um, Herod's wife, she was actually a, uh, a daughter of a leader south of Israel, and they ended up having a war because of this, and, and most of the army of Herod's army ended up getting killed in that one of those battles. But, but catch this as well, another piece. For Herodias, his wife, here's maybe what you don't understand. Herodias was also his niece. Okay? Herodias was a daughter of an older half-brother, half Aristobulus. So Herod was the uncle to his wife. Just think of a wife calling you uncle. 
But some people believe as well, and it's written and assumed that Philip and Herodias had a daughter, and her name was Salome, and this would have been the girl that was dancing at the party. Now, one last piece as well is that Herod associated with the Jews. And he was a quasi-type Jew, if you want to put it in those terms. He claimed to follow Yahweh, and, but he wasn't a Roman again. But he acted like a Jew, and for really for expedience only. And the conservative Jews in, in Israel, you know what? They didn't give any legitimacy to him being a, an Israelite or a Jewish in the Jewish faith. So you understand the tension there as he ruled this area. So about the time again, so understand this, John the Baptist then steps in, he publicly denounces Herod's marriage to Herodias, and they believe that he did this over and over a number of times in public, so it spread through the whole region. And because of that denouncement, Herod's wife, Herodias, wanted him dead. But the most he could do is get him arrested. Herod feared that there was going to be an uprising. He, he might get banished again. But one other piece as well about Herodias. Josephus, actually, Josephus, the first century historian, writes about this woman. And it has it that when John the Baptist's head was brought to her, she puts it on the floor and she repeatedly spits on it. And then she took his tongue and took a nail and drove it into the floor through the tongue. And you go, nice lady, huh? But you think about the character of this wife. She basically prostituted her daughter and had her daughter dance suggestively in front of these men. And we think it, and there's been some TV depictions of this event and most of those depictions think of her as a you know, 20, 25-year-old woman. But the way the word is phrased, young woman, that would have meant somewhere between 13 and 15 in terms of Salome's age when she danced in front of the men. Folks, this mother wasn't your finest mother. But one point I have to point out concerning Salome, the daughter, in our culture, and this is a, a, theo a theological piece I think we need to catch, we think that depravity can't start with children. It really is, happens later on in life. But I'm here to tell you that's just not biblical and not true. See, as you read the Matthew account, as you read this account, there's a place where you don't see her being forced to do this at all, a young girl. There had been, a, I believe, a, young, a slide even in the depravity of a young girl who's 13 to 15 years of old where she was willing to carry a head on a platter and not be concerned about it and freely being used by her mom to go into this depravity and this ugly behavior. See, depravity goes deeper and deeper. And, and you understand that Judges 21, everyone does with its own with what's right in their own eyes. It can be at levels. A person might not be very sinful and they decide that, but you go to another level and then they decide what's right in their own eyes, and then another level where they decide what's right in their own eyes. And at some point along that, that spiraling down, the conscience disappears. And for Herodias, the wife, the conscience had gone. There was really none left. 
little bit, we could say, in King Herod. But let me show you more in the scene here. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Now, in the, the Matthew text, it uses greatly pleased. That's why they believe that this is a sexual dance. This wasn't some cheerleading dance that was going on. And look at the response. And the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give up half my kingdom. And you look at that and you go, half his kingdom? This guy had probably been drinking a little bit too much or he was really stupid or both. We could say, I think, in that sense. But the daughter then goes in 24, verse 24, they go, she asked her mother, what should I do? What should I ask for? And the mother tells her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. But you'll notice, I don't have it on the screen, but verse 26, it says the king was exceedingly sorry. There was still a little bit of conscience left with him. But it put him in a hard spot. Of what does he do now? Because he kind of liked John the Baptist. But see, I, I think there's a second bullet here in terms of his character. I said it this way. He was a people pleaser. Herod was a people pleaser to the core. He tried to do it with Rome, by the way, and he had to save face here. He had to show how tough he was, and so John the Baptist was decapitated. But there was a sense of deep depravity with this man as well. But here's a third bullet that I think is true of Herod as well. He was deluded. He had the ability to mislead his own mind and to spiral down into depravity. And the irony is that he kind of regrets it all at the same time. But he had a wife who was at least as evil as he was. And he couldn't say no to her. But he believed that saving face was more important than doing what was right or wrong. Now, let me give you a reminder here. I, I think this, it's a warning for us. In your notes, I, I said it this way. When repentance is absent, the control of sin pulls and pushes people farther and farther into depravity. See, when sin is not realized, what happens, it pushes people down. It could push us down to the point where we can sing and not sink and not even realize it. And the mind deludes oneself and we justify our behaviors, our actions of what we do. Matter of fact, years ago, I had an individual come to my office and, and they had, it had been found out that this couple had had an affair and this one person came in and, and I was talking to that person and, and, and it was interesting because he made this statement, it was a he, he made this statement, God said it was okay. God wanted me to be happy. And, and can, you know, can we say delusion at that point? But one can believe the lies and continue to sink farther into sin and even use God talk to justify it. But see, Herod here, fearful, a people pleaser, deluded, making up a new reality to life, and the conscious never could win out and ever bring him back to a point of repentance. He had spiraled down. He was too far gone. 
Quite a character, isn't it? Showing the state of depravity of people. But let me contrast that with John the Baptist. And it's a dramatic contrast. And let me just point out one of the, in the first bullet there in your notes, I said one of the qualities of this man, he feared God rather than man. Complete opposite of Herod. He clearly was concerned about what God thought. Now, when we say the fear of God, understand it's not about being afraid. It's about respect. It's about awe. It's about recognizing that there is somebody bigger and more transcendent than we are. John the Baptist honored God knowing that he was in control. Another quality, though, I see in his life, great courage. See, John the Baptist was unwilling to compromise, to stand for what's right, even publicly. And folks, we live in a culture where it is going to take more and more courage to say that we are a follower of Christ. And I think if we, after the service, sec first service, we're talking about teenagers because they move into the, in, into the next level of college and beyond and how difficult it's going to be to stand up at, a, at some secular school and acknowledge, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus. The courage that it's going to take for young people. Young people, take note of that. We pray that God would give you courage. But we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us that courage to be bold and do it with wisdom and integrity. But there's, I said the next, look look at the next bullet. Another quality of him was integrity. See, in spite of his rebuking Herod, Herod respected John the Baptist. John, uh, Herod could not deny the character of, of this man, John the Baptist. You you see those words, holy, righteous. There was a sincerity with this man. So here was a man of the world, depraved. He couldn't deny the character of John. And you go, does that not apply to us as well? As followers of Christ, we live in a a world where we're called to build relationships with the world. And the fact, it calls us to be respected, to to have such lives that are of integrity, that they will listen to us, they'll hear us, they'll see the gospel in us. See, John the Baptist really is a model for us as we walk in this world. But I think there's one more quality here this morning that John the Baptist had, and I think it was this. He had great faith, great faith. But let me kind of describe some of the faith here of John the Baptist. I want to do it first by reading Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. Look at verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of the lions, 34, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword whose weaknesses were turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. I'll just stop there a moment. Do you catch what's subtly implied or we could read into this? Is that when faith happens, when faith is deeply rooted in our lives, that things happen for the good. The mouths of lions are shut. Kingdoms are conquered. 
But then you've got to pause and go, okay, wait a minute here. John the Baptist, um, he had faith. Kingdoms weren't conquered. Matter of fact, he's imprisoned and he's decapitated. Where's faith there? Well, thank goodness for the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 35 in Hebrews 11. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of these received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, said only together with us would they be made perfect. See, some people believe that faith is about getting something good happening, receiving something tangible. But folks, faith has an object. And it's built on the triune God. That's where faith starts. It's not believing in believing. But you think of John. He had deep faith, and yet he suffered and finally beheaded. Great faith. See, I think it tells us something about the nature of life on this earth, about suffering and pain and hardship. See, I think there are people here today, I suspect there's people, I know there's probably people today that are struggling in some way in your life. Suffering, maybe physically, other circumstances. Things aren't getting better. And it, it, it pushes us to doubt God. And we begin to wonder, you know what, maybe my faith just isn't strong enough. That's why the things aren't getting better. But see, John really points to a, kind of an opposite understanding of faith in that sense. I'm going to ask the elders to climb up. We're going to do communion as well. But let me close it like this. Folks, faith is not about circumstances. See, John the Baptist teaches us is that there's an object to the faith, but the object to the faith is good. He is in control. And that just maybe God had something planned that was far better than our circumstances here in this world. See, faith calls us to trust God when it's going well and when suffering takes place. See, that's the challenge for us today. Now, I, as I pondered that, there's a hard reality I think we've got to be reminded of because if suffering pulls out the worst in us, uh, where we become bitter, it might be that our faith is kind of a fair-weather faith. It's a faith when things go well. But when suffering and trials pulls us toward righteousness, toward trusting God, then we begin to have a faith like John the Baptist. God is good no matter what. And to what extent? We, anything. We can have faith. Through anything, we can have faith. In faith, Herodias and Herod had him killed. But God was still in control. 
God was still preparing John the Baptist for something better. And it calls for us to think in those terms where we seek him and his kingdom. And it says, promise that he's going to add these things. What are these things? One of them is faith. That we can trust that he's good, no matter what the hardships and the turmoil that's going on in our lives. But folks, we have a communion table this morning, and it represents the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Guys, why don't you hand out the bread? We practice open communion here if you're new. Uh, We encourage you to take it, just hold it. We're going to take it together as well. But this reminds us that Jesus died for us. And as we put our faith in him, whether life is going well or not well, God is still on the throne and he is good. And one day, it might be in eternity. That's the hard part for us. One day into eternity, he may change things. He will change things around for us. And we may have to wait, but we trust God. We put our faith in him.